All right, there we go. <laughs> uh, welcome uh, from, uh, from Rome. Uh, my name is Father Thomas. All right, recording in progress. Very good. <laughs> One more time. Um, uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Father Thomas Davenport. Um, welcome from the Angelicum here in Rome uh, to our monthly uh, online science and religion lecture. Um, uh, I'm a, a professor of philosophy uh, here at the Angelicum, a member of the Angelicum Thomistic Institute, uh, particularly uh, part with Father Mario Tabacek of the Project on Science and Religion. And this online lecture series is, is one of our efforts at uh, uh, bringing uh, um, interesting and, and informative talks on the engagement between science and religion uh, to a broader audience. Um, for the first five months of the, uh, uh, the year, we had a, a sort of mini series uh, looking at questions around transhumanism, about the far future of uh, what some people claim science is leading us towards uh, and various philosophical and theological questions that raised. Uh, and now we're going to uh, turn things around a little bit. And uh, over the next four months, we'll having a short series looking primarily at the history of science and questions around the relationship between science and religion drawn from that history. Um, uh, in particular, we're, we're entitling this the, the Forgotten History of Faith in Science. Um, and the next three talks, so beginning next month, will each focus on a particular individual, uh, a sort of little-known individual um, in the uh, that that manifests or in, in their life sort of expresses something of the 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 uh, the, the relationship between faith and science. Um, so next month we'll have a talk on Gerber of Oriac, uh, Pope and scientist. Uh, the month after that, we'll have a talk on Blessed Nicholas Steno, um, uh, look, stepping into science and sainthood. And then finally, a talk on uh, Angelo Secchi, a 19th century Jesuit and astronomer. Um, but to begin, uh, in, in one sense, uh, the, this series, one, uh, instead of focusing on an individual, uh, the focus is going to be on um, the forgotten history of how we even think about the relationship between science and religion. Um, and where the, you know, the common understanding of that relationship and, in fact, that conflict uh, originated. Uh, and so to, to lead us in that, um, we are very pleased to have uh, Dr. Lawrence Principe uh, to joining us. So um, I'll introduce him in a moment, but just to let you know that um, we'll have roughly, you know, uh, 40, 45 minutes for the talk and then the rest of the hour for questions. If you have a particular question, please feel free to type it into the chat there and then we'll uh, I'll moderate the questions uh, when, when Dr. Principe is done. Um, but uh, there we are. Uh, so Dr. Lawrence Principe is the Drew Professor of Humanities at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of History of Science and Technology and in the Department of Chemistry. He holds a PhD in organic chemistry from Indiana University and a PhD in history of science from Johns Hopkins. And his research focuses on late medieval and early modern alchemy slash chemistry and the interactions of science and religion. Uh, his recent books include The Scientific Revolution, a very short introduction. I highly recommend it. I use it in my classes talking about the history of science. Um, also the, the Secrets of Alchemy uh, from, uh, and then the Transmutations of Chemistry. Uh, Wilhelm Holmberg and the Academy Royale de, Cien uh, de, de, de Ciencias. Sorry for my bad French there. Um, he also produced uh, the 12 lecture course Science and Religion for the Teaching Company. Uh, and he is the recipient, recipient of the Francis Bacon Medal, uh, the, the Franklin Lavoisier Prize, the American Chemical Associ uh, Society's History Award, 
uh, and the St. Albert the Great Award from the Society of Catholic Scientists, all for his various scholarly contributions. So we are very pleased to have Dr. Principe here this evening to speak to us on the origins of the myth of the warfare of religion with science. Well, uh, thank you, Father Thomas, for a very nice introduction, and thank you for the invitation to speak here. I'm um, very honored to have the privilege to uh, start off this series and to address everyone. So what I'm going to try to do this evening is attempt to understand a massive change in the relationship between science and religion that took place relatively recently, that is, since the 19th century. Now, before that time, religion in the study of the natural world had what I would call a largely ironic relationship. Now, of course, disagreements did arise, um, as happens whenever human beings are interacting with one another. Uh, but throughout the scientific revolution, uh, so the 16th and 17th centuries, religious motivations, I would argue, more than anything else, drove the development of scientific knowledge. But obviously today the situation is far different. There do, of course, remain scientists of a religious temper and many who still see their work as having a religious imperative, the religious imperative to study God's creation. Nevertheless, there are also many other people, both scientists and among the general public, not to mention, um, well, less well-educated religious figures uh, who claim it impossible for science and religion to coexist, impossible for, let's say, a scientist to be also religious. How and why and when did this shift take place? So what I'll do uh, now is I'll speak first about two major promoters of the ideas of a constant conflict or warfare between science and religion, and then explore the evolution of this idea through the 20th century down to our own day. Well, first, to be perfectly blunt and frank about it, um, every serious historian of science today rejects the conflict or warfare model for the historical interaction of science and religion. Nevertheless, regardless of what we historians of science do in our ivory tower, the notion has become naturalized as a fact in popular culture. Well, historians identify two late 19th century books as the conflict thesis's chief vectors. Uh, John William Draper's A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, which was published in 1874, and Andrew Dixon White's A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, published a little bit later in 1896. Now, I give you those dates because I think it's very striking that the warfare model appeared quite suddenly and almost fully formed in its modern version uh, from these two authors at nearly the same time, from 1869 until 1873. Well, let me talk first about Andrew Dixon White. Um, he was trained as a historian. He became president of the American Historical Association and was the first president and founder of, of Cornell University. More on that in a moment. He first aired his claims in December 1869 in a lecture he gave called The Battlefields of Science. He published an expanded version as The Warfare of Science in 1876. After a decade of silence from 1885 until 1895, he published in the journal Popular Science Monthly 25 articles, all entitled New Chapters in the Warfare of Science. Then he put them all together in 1896 into a ponderous two-volume collection 
a history of the warfare between science and theology in Christendom. Well, historians have long known that these publications were a response to criticism that White received during his work to found Cornell University as a non-sectarian institution. It was not atheistic, but not, not by non-sectarian, I just mean not founded by any particular um, religious denomination. But this reading overlooks a very key part of the story. Um, the golden apple of discord, if I can call it that, for White's warfare was actually a federal law known as the Land Grant Act of 1862. What did this law do? It gave, the federal government gave large tracts of land to each of the states in the United States that was these, these, this land was to be sold and then the money used to support education. In New York State, the legislature chose among many competing colleges, obviously all the colleges wanted their share of the money. They, the legislator said, we're gonna give it to a small college, which is called People's College. But the college couldn't meet the qualifications for receiving the money. And so a New York Senator, whose name was Ezra Cornell, decided, oh, well, let's split the money between two colleges. At just this time, White was elected to the New York Senate and became head of its education committee. The first thing he did was to kill that bill to divide the money between two colleges. That made it look like the federal money was up for grabs again and all the colleges started lobbying for the money again. But then White, together with Ezra Cornell, introduced a new bill. The bill would not give the money to any college that existed, but would rather be used to found a new one. Well, there was a lot of argument and controversy as there usually is in these kinds of matters, but the new bill passed the state legislature in 1865. And that is how Cornell University was founded. Well, following such dealings, one can see why the losers, the colleges that didn't get the money, would continue to voice their criticisms and especially to suspect, to, excuse me, to suspect impropriety when White left the Senate to become the new college's first president and Ezra Cornell had it named after him and uh, obtained exclusive control over the money from the sale of the land. Well, most of the colleges that sought their share of the money were in fact denominational colleges, which was then the norm for American uh, colleges. And so what White chose to do was to characterize their criticism as a reactionary religious zealotry. But honestly, when we look at the historical record, uh, to what extent religion played any role whatsoever in arguments over federal money is very much open to question. White's uh, warfare model resulted predominantly from personal issues and not from historical evidence. He really created this warfare model as a response to personal criticism and unfortunately retailered historical events to suit it. What I find very difficult to understand, I mean, this man was a historian, he was president of the American Historical Association. How did he justify to himself what he did? For example, he used, um, uh, the fiction writer Washington Irving as the source for his facts about Columbus. He misquotes St. Augustine. 
by truncating the quotation to make the African doctor look like he says exactly the opposite of what he was really saying. I warn my students that if they try anything like this in my class, I'm going to fail them or put them up on charges of academic dishonesty. I don't understand how White was able to do this, but um, some contemporaneous reviewers of his book recognized this. One called his book, quote, an indiscriminate and uncritical agglomeration of facts brought together for the support of a thoroughly one-sided and fatally misleading proposition. A book like this was not worth writing, end quote. Well, the other character, I was gonna show you some photos of them. So let me share my screen for a moment here. There we are. Next one. There's a, uh, Andrew Dixon White. There's his 1896 book. The next one I was going to talk about is John William Draper. He's actually much, much more interesting, I think. Uh, this is not just a guy who's stung by criticism and angry. He's actually got a philosophical perspective that's, frankly, interesting, even if slightly um, bizarre. Um, Draper, a little bit about him, he was born in England. He was the son of a Methodist minister. He emigrated to the United States in 1832, became a professor of chemistry, then of physiology. He started publishing on chemistry, then on physiology. He did a lot with photography. He took the first known photograph of the moon, for example. And then in the 1850, turned entirely to writing history. Well, his work may seem eclectic, but they actually form an interesting trajectory. His thought can be characterized as an obsession with law. His early treatise, that's his book that I'm going to get to, let's look at his early treatise first, uh, on the organization of plants, proposes that the growth of plants, quote, unquestionably depends upon the laws of physics. So he takes the obedience of celestial emotions to a single common law as his model, and he asserts that all of nature is controlled by uniform law. His later textbook on human physiology continues the theme. He, this keeps saying that external influences, particularly climate, cause what he calls metamorphoses of the human body and thence of human society through natural laws. What makes a sudden appearance here is the influence of the positivism of Auguste Comte. Claiming that all systems of metaphysics have fallen into disarray, Draper asserts the need for a new guide for humanity and that this guide, quote, is positive science. So this devotion to positivism offers a blueprint for Draper's authorship, quote, According to the methods of positive philosophy, there are but two classes of facts which can be admitted to our discussions respecting man, those furnished by his structure and function, and those gathered from his historical, his historical career. So human physiology talks about the first, and his next books will talk about the second. His history of intellectual development in Europe is all about the inescapable influence of uniform law, predominantly the influence of climate on physiology. And that governs for him the development of human individuals, of human societies, and of the human race as a whole. The single argument of the book is, can be summarized, or he summarizes it as, quote, the government of the world is accomplished by immutable law, 
So human actions count for little or nothing. We're all subject to these external laws that predestine individual and collective actions and outcomes. A universal law of development, as he calls it, applies to everything, inanimate entities, plants and animals, human individuals, societies, and civilization as a whole. As a very brief aside, he writes one of the first uh, histories of the American Civil War. And his explanation for why the Civil War happened is that the climates of North and South are different. These caused a change in the physiology of Northern Americans versus Southern Americans, which then brought them as two different, essentially, races inescapably into conflict. And so his solution for the future is to build more North-South railroads so people can mix so that two different society, two different physiologically different peoples don't arise and then come into conflict again. He wrote, in fact, had more North-South travel happened in the 1840s, there would have been no civil war. Okay, I'm not making it up really. Um, so how does his 1874, there, there's his history of the civil war, 1868, you can see, so right after the war. So how does this book uh, fit into it? Well, unsurprisingly, his law of development undergirds the work. His obsession with law leads him to apply what sounds like a modification of Boyle's gas law to the science-religion dynamic. He summarizes the entire history of science as, quote, a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests on the other. Well, he promises to deal only with what he calls facts, and that these indicate, quote, the irresistible dominion of law and the insignificance of human exertions. Well, he promises the reader a book with, quote, every page glistening with facts, giving, quote, a clear and impartial statement that does not advocate the views and pretensions of either party, end quote. Unfortunately, what follows is neither factual nor impartial. Much of the book's historical material is taken from his earlier work uh, or earlier historical works, but there's one important difference that shows up here that does not show up in the other works at all. The book's melodramatic, in fact, I would say hysterical tone. And book, Draper's book is not actually against religion itself, but very specifically against Catholicism. It's one long anti-Catholic rant. Draper calls Protestantism the twin sister of science, and therefore that any persecution of science by Protestants comes solely from, quote, an incomplete emancipation from Catholicism. He calls Islam the Southern Reformation, carried out by a people benevolent to science and progress, while Catholicism is the brutal enemy of science, progress, and civilization. Quote, Roman Christianity and science are recognized by their respective adherents, get a load of that, are recognized by their respective adherents as being absolutely incompatible. They cannot exist together. Mankind must make its choice. It cannot have both. Um, I'm sure that any number of Catholic scientists in 1875, 76 would have been surprised by that. 
Well, any attempt at an analysis of history is swept away by his inflammatory rhetoric built upon cherry-picked, contorted, and very, very often simply fabricated facts. Well, his new tone is traceable, I think, to at least three factors. The first is the late 19th century American panic over Catholic immigration. Draper, apparently forgetting that he himself was an immigrant, refers to the insidious agency of immigration and the dangers of a hybrid population. He argues that Irish Catholic immigrants keep regions where they settle, quote, in a lower intellectual state. Second, Draper's father's conversion to Methodism caused his ostracism by the rest of the Draper family, which was, as you may have guessed it, Catholic, a fact that he strove to hide. Um, I note with delightful irony that John William Draper's uh, grandson became an Anglo-Catholic priest. Um, Draper's sister, Elizabeth, who had come with him from England, converted to Catholicism while in America, and Draper threw her out of the house. Finally, papal declarations in 1864 and 1870 drove Draper over the edge. In 1864, uh, Pius IX issued a syllabus of errors listing philosophical positions um, considered erroneous such as absolute rationalism and the denial of God's action in the world, both of which are central to Draper's metaphysics. In 1870, the First Vatican Council spoke out against materialism, defined papal infallibility, reasserted the role of faith in human life and understanding, and emphasized the role religion had to play in governing society. And these statements were directly opposed to Draper's deterministic universal law of development. Of course, Draper, we can argue, Draper completely ignores the historical context of these uh, um, events, and particularly Pius IX's notable embrace of the new science and technology. Um, the odd part that I don't have an answer for, I have to go do some archive spelunking to figure this out, but, you know, Pius IX reestablished the Academia de Linche, the Scientific Academy, uh, to which, ironically enough, Draper would be elected. So that's a mystery I have to figure out. Well, crucially, it would be wrong to see Draper as an anti-religious scientist. Instead, Draper's conflict uh, book implicitly promotes a religion of his own devising a theology that is opposed to Christianity and to Catholicism in particular. Draper's theology derives from his metaphysical assumption of an all-encompassing immutable law. His religion is explicitly anti-Trinitarian. He claims that the doctrine of the Trinity was introduced from Egyptian paganism, as was veneration of the Virgin. And this is why he calls Islam the Southern Reformation. It introduced monotheism in opposition to Christianity, which he implicitly casts as polytheistic. Well, his adulation of Islam led to this remarkable graphic that prefaced a review of his book just shortly after its publication. Um, there's, you could read what uh, the, the very small lines along the bottom actually say. Um, so Draper's obsession with law forbids God from ever intervening in the world. And so he produces a fully non-providential God and deifies instead his universal law. 
This is why he praises what he calls the fatalism of the Arabs as insightful resignation to the absolutism of impersonal law. Interestingly, his religious teacher seems to be a Veroese, or rather a caricature of a Veroese, whose doctrine of emanation and absorption of the soul he supports by appealing to the conservation of force. Uh, he fulminates against Vatican I specifically for condemning what he sees as specifically a Veroistic doctrines. And in short, to sum it up, Draper is championing, uh, championing, championing, excuse me, a deterministic, pantheistic, pseudo-averoistic religion as the one true faith, and does not hesitate to condemn any who dare to object to it. Therefore, I will conclude that his book is not really about the conflict between science and religion, but is in fact a conflict between Draper's religion and all others, particularly Catholicism. Well, Draper's book, like White's, is hopelessly ahistorical. Shortly after its publication, Scribner's Monthly wrote that, quote, a more hasty, pretentious, incorrect work claiming the title of history has seldom fallen into our hands, and declared the book, quote, swarming with statements either positively erroneous or put into such a form as to be misleading, end quote. Another reviewer wrote that Draper depends upon, quote, a very superficial definition of religion, for the word religion is to him no more than a symbol that stands for unenlightened bigotry or narrow-minded unwillingness to look facts in the face, end quote. Well, the judgment of modern historians is even more damning than that, but that didn't really matter. Draper's book became a bestseller and was translated into multiple languages. The champion of both Draper's book and White's was the publisher and popularizer Edward Humans. Humans both commissioned Draper to write the conflict and published White's multiple articles in the popular Science Monthly, of which he was the editor. So this con I've talked about two authors, but those two authors then coalesce in this one publisher. Um, White's final 1896 warfare was published by Appleton, who was Yeoman's friend and followed Yeoman's advice on what to publish and not to publish. Well, Humans also published his own glowing review of Draper's conflict, as well as spirited responses to the book's critics. For, claim, for example, he claimed that any criticism of Draper's book came only from, and I quote, the outside sects, Jews, Unitarians, and Catholics, whom the Orthodox repudiate as beyond the pale of Christianity, knowing nothing of true religion, end quote. How much of his enthusiasm for both books consists of honestly held opinions, and how much represents a publisher desirous, desirous of hawking his own publications, is a matter of discussion. What I do wonder about is how much of the hysterical tone of Draper's book, which as I said is new for that book, it doesn't happen in his earlier writings, is Draper's own invention, and how much was fed to him by the publisher. In any event, Humans uh, uh, was a key player in the initiation, diffusion, and popularization of the idea of an inherent warfare between science and religion. 
So um, having contextualized Draper and White's publications, let me just summarize. So White's book is, I'm going to stop sharing for the moment. Yeah. Um, White's book is an over-the-top response to criticism regarding the founding of Cornell. Draper espouses a religion of science of his own devising. Um, Draper's metaphysics, by the way, uh, will return in late 20th century scientism, I think, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But now to a question I hope it should be on everyone's mind. How could books that are so wildly historically inaccurate, so absurdly written that very few people today have ever read or heard about them, how could they still have such profound impact? You know, when I teach science and religion to my students at Hopkins, I keep trying to get some something, uh, some quotation, a few pages out of one or the other book, particularly out of Draper's book, to give to my students to read. But the problem is they're so absurd that I imagine that the students would just laugh at them. Um, so why did these become so popular? Nobody's read them, nobody's heard of them, but things that they say, like before the time of Columbus, everybody thought the world was flat. The Catholic Church forbade human dissection, both completely erroneous. Those two myths came into modern consciousness, common knowledge through these two books. Well, to answer that question, we have to examine the book's afterlives and how they fed into particular needs of contemporaneous social and future political needs. So for such a myth, for myths like this, the myth of the warfare of science and religion to survive, it has to play some important role and have people willing to repeat it. Well, one such role is to reinforce pre-existing ideas. In the late 19th century, Draper's book did just that. It reinforced 19th century American racism against Catholic immigration. Both Draper and White also reinforced 19th century ideas of progress, of the emergence of a new age in the late 19th century made possible through science. But their fictions were also useful for political and social themes. In Europe, their books became manifestos for political secularizers, legitimating plans for secular governments and justifying the violent seizure of property and power held by the clergy. This was perhaps nowhere more evident than in Italy, where um, Rome and the rest of the papal lands had very recently been seized in the unification of Italy, the Pope virtually imprisoned in the Vatican, and many Italian religious institutions dispersed or secularized following the unification of Italy during the Risorgimento. Um, and Draper became very popular. His, the Italian translations were very popular here at the time um, because they fed into these political schemes and what was actually happening. Well, the tale of the eternal conflict of science and religion also operates as an origin myth for science. It lays the foundations for setting up science as a religion of its own. Well, Draper and White's books implicitly borrow imagery from the history of religion, in fact, by creating a litany of martyrs, a hagiography of oppressed visionaries. They recast scientists as prophets and priests who suffered to spread a gospel of science against the ignorance of the pagans, that is, the old priesthood of religion. And in fact, I think um, there's some very, very good articles on this, 
at present now in the literature, the social dynamics of folklore better explain the continuing strength and popularity of the warfare model than anything else. It has become part of the folklore of science. Well, the origin myth of science also spoke to concerns about social status and authority in the newly professionalizing scientists of the late 19th century. How did it do so? Well, it delivered authority to scientists by appropriating it from the well-established authority of religion. The priests of God guided social and political currents of the past, while the priests of natural science will guide new social and political currents of the future. So by arguing that scientists had defeated religionists at every turn, it followed naturally that scientists had rightly displaced religionists and taken to themselves their cultural position of authority. So the myth lent, and importantly, continues to lend to this day, identity, pedigree, and position to scientists. Now, I realize there's one thing I haven't said. I haven't you know, anatomized their books to tell you about all their erroneous facts. Um, that would take forever, and other, other historians have done a very good job of it. The one thing, since I just used the two words, the fundamental error, the really fundamental error in both of their works is assuming that there's a class of scientists and a class of religionists throughout history that are in conflict without realizing that those are artificial constructs of the late 19th century as, as uh, distinct entities. So that's, that's the fundamental historical starting flaw that um, um, vitiates their entire books. Well, there's more. The concept of an inherent incompatibility of science and religion and the struggle for socio-political authority was perpetuated by a surprising cast of characters in the 20th century. So I'm not trying to say there's the long jump across a, 130 years of, of um, time. No, these books are being perpetuated. The trigger for the new stage in the idea was the horror of the First World War. It was the first technological war with chemical weapons, airplane bombings, mechanized tanks, and so forth. And it scarred a generation, forcing a new rethinking of where human society was heading. For our present purposes, two significant but divergent responses emerged. The one I'm going to talk about first came from what uh, has been called the techno-utopianists, who believed that the social, political, and moral systems of the past had to be replaced with scientific and technological thinking for reformulating society. For most of them, their views included some sort of socialist politics and a materialist ideology, a vision of a world government and the abolition of religion, not only as a relic of the past, but a stumbling block for the future. Let me share my screen again so I can show you one of the characters we're gonna talk about here. Um, the key, uh, one of the key techno-utopianists was H.G. Wells. Now today he's remembered mostly as a science fiction writer, but his post-war writings were far more influential. Uh, his best-selling book was his Outline of History, published in 1919, which some people claim is, was maybe the, mo the most widespread, most, uh, excuse me, best-selling history book of all time. His book follows an oversimplifying reductionist strategy, much like Draper's, and repeatedly casts religion, Christianity in particular, as the enemy of human progress. 
Now, how much he relied on Draper and White remains unclear. You need more research to draw that out. But having read his book, the episodes and the language that he uses suggest that they were his major sources. Um, his narrative is built on a stark division between science, technology, and progress on one side and religion on the other. Once again, professional historians rejected the work, but it became a worldwide bestseller. In 1923, he published Men Like Gods about a utopia where science flourishes and religion has died away. And in 1933, The Shape of Things to Come. If you've ever seen either of the movies with that title, forget about them because they're not really based on his book. The book tells of a new world war followed by, the, by a plague that wipes out most of humanity. A world government is set up, which first eliminates Islam by blowing up all the mosques, except those with architectural value. Um, then the Pope and the Catholic hierarchy are invited to a meeting with the world government where they are gassed to death. Uh, Protestants are never mentioned, by the way. Finally, the world government is overthrown and a worldwide council of scientists builds a utopian society. Now, hearing this, we might think about this as a horrific dystopic vision, but the real horror is that it seems to be what Wells was actually advocating. Um, utopia would emerge when scientists put themselves unopposed at the head of the table. So once again, this repeated problem of scientists' concern about their social position and authority uh, comes again to the fore. Well, these kinds of visions didn't fail to elicit criticism. The most famous is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, a book that infuriated Wells, who called it, pay attention to his language here, quote, a blasphemy against science. An interesting choice of words. Um, Aldous's brother Julian Huxley also responded saying that, quote, science is now in danger of setting itself up as an external code or framework as did revealed religion of the past. Um, so um, Huxley's idea of a scientific humanism, although it wasn't as stark and hegemonic as the views he critiqued, came over time to become closer and closer to socialist materialist visions. And one of Huxley's collaborators remarked bluntly how he finally realized that, quote, scientific humanism was to be regarded as the formulation of a new religion. So once again, we return not to a well-defined conflict between science and religion, but rather towards a conflict between rival religions or at least of rival metaphysics. So many scientists shared Wells' view, particularly several biochemists who made materialistic assertions about the nature of life. J.D. Bernal, a noted X-ray crystallographer and staunch communist and atheist, asserted in 1936 that, quote, the secret of life lies in the structure of proteins and X-ray crystallography is the only way to solve it. He added rather ominously that, quote, life has now ceased to be a mystery and has become a utility. His contemporary and eagerly enthusiastic supporter of the Soviet Union, the geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, um, held and voiced similar views about life. Both of them were also science popularizers and wrote numerous works uh, and gave numerous lectures that expressed such views to the general public. 
The debate over the nature of life from World War I until the 1960s illustrates the larger battle between such materialist scientists who saw life as having, excuse me, between materialist scientists and those who saw life as having a significance beyond the arrangement of chemical entities. And these arguments over the nature of life through the middle of the 20th century were very consciously engaged in as a struggle between science and religion. And thus it prompts me to suggest that the texts of Draper and White, whose popularity had not decreased through this period, acted as blueprints for what would become a warfare of science and religion, regardless of the fact that their descriptions of the past were largely fictionalized. So it's my opinion that these socialist, materialist, and techno-utopian currents of the interwar period, drawing strength from the narratives of Draper and White and Wells, um, an impetus from scientists' unease with their social and political status compromised the chief foundations of modern scientism, the exclusionary and reductionist belief that science and methods provide the only valid means of gaining knowledge. Um, <clears throat> just as some illustrations of this sort of scientism, um, consider Stephen Hawking's claim that philosophy is dead, because science is the only legitimate way to answer questions. Would take someone about three seconds to come up with questions that can't be answered scientifically, but never mind. Um, the physical chemist Peter Atkins asserts that science has, quote, universal competence to resolve all questions whatsoever. I'll not mention here that most of scientism's loudest advocates fail to have any clear definition of what science actually is. Um, but that would be another lecture. As for the arrogance that is often the traveling companion of scientism, we could look at Steven Weinberg's recent To Explain the World, in which he brushes off Plato as silly, Parmenides and Zeno as lazy, and Aristotle as tedious. Um, he repeats uh, Draper and White wholesale, setting religion and science as irreconcilable opposites and asserting once again that Christianity has been an optical to human progress. So we can see clearly here the continuing dependence of some scientists upon the myth of conflict between science and religion as a foundation myth, not just for science itself, but also more viscerally for their own personal identity as scientists. Now, I don't entirely mean this as, uh, this is not an offhanded remark, because, or, or is it un, completely unjustified for them? Because indeed the scientific establishment has had its social and political status shaken in the past generation. And I think therefore has turned with new vigor towards this foundation myth. We can list postmodernist critiques and the science wars of the 90s, um, uh, disillusionment over the failure of science to solve humanity's problems, uh, criticism about pollution, um, anti-intellectualism, the new regime of alternative facts. All of these weaken the position that science and scientists have steadily been achieving since the late 19th century. So scientists are legitimately concerned about um, threats to their authority and the authority of science and scientific reasoning. Uh, and that sort of diminishment, I think, begs quite naturally for the support of a grand foundational story. And the science religion myth is probably the one that's most easily available. Um, but 
One last remark before I finish, this recent displacement from the center reminds me of the other current that came out of World War I um, and suggests a similarity between opposing sides of the system, of the, of the spectrum, of groups that actually are in conflict with one another and do seem to instantiate a science-religion warfare. And that is, in the United States, the wars in humanity galvanized the budding fundamentalist movement. And it emerged on the eve of the First World War against an array of social and demographic shifts. Um, its more thoughtful supporters attributed the barbarity of the war to the rise of materialist ideologies and saw religious revival as the antidote. Um, those concerned about the future of civil society, like William Jennings Bryan at the 1925 Scopes trial, were not motivated primarily at this time by dissonance, let's say, with literal readings of Genesis 1, but rather by what they saw as the dehumanizing effect of promoting animal origins of humanity. Um, if human beings are just animals, went the argument, then what's the moral prohibition against mistreating them or simply killing off the inconvenient ones? And it's interesting that many of the techno-utopianists were also promoters of the eugenics movement at the same time. Um, well, this more thoughtful attitude within fundamentalism did not persist within U.S. fundamentalism after the 1920s. And when new educational uh, curricula came out in the 1960s, it became confrontational towards science itself, using biblical literalism as its main argument, a situation largely unchanged to our day, thus seeming to support the erroneous idea that science and religion have to be, have always been in conflict. So my point's twofold. I wonder again to what extent the battle lines drawn by Draper and White um, were molded the shape of what we are witnessing today. And second, what we witness now is not really a cosmic battle between science and religion. It's really a very noisy and dramatic struggle between scientism and fundamentalism. And although these may seem to be two different ends of the spectrum, they actually sprout from common origins, um, not only as responses to World War I, but rather about insecurity of their advocates in regard to their social and political position. In conclusion, it may be difficult to dispense with the myth that wouldn't die, as my colleagues call it now, so long as it serves a useful function for scientists insecure about their social and political position, for fundamentalists insecure about their political clout and the size of their congregations, and for atheists insecure about their choice of religion. Um, in my personal experience, it really hasn't been productive to work on either end of the spectrum. Um, but that leaves for our audience the great majority in the middle who can be taught to view the opposed, supposedly eternal conflict as a myth with very specific historical origins, developments, and perpetuations. And so I will end with the historian's plea simply to get the history right. And that is something that I trust uh, my, uh, my um, subsequent, the subsequent speakers in this lecture series will continue uh, after I conclude. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Principe, for that very uh, informative lecture and 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 sort of, yeah, lay, laying out that history very clearly, that particular narrative. Um, and yeah, interesting, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the origin point and what might have perpetuated it and, and, and maintains the, in the fact of like, 
in presenting the history as a warfare, it suddenly actually creates the warfare in some sense. Maybe if I can ask the first question. So if we look back then before White and Draper, right, there is, you know, a, a rising, you know, there, there's rise of, you know, socialism and various atheistic movements um, and, and political movements. So I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the French Revolution, whatnot, where there's sort of, there are anti-Catholic or anti-religious movements in general. Was there any way in which, like, in, to what extent did, was there an attempt by more secular or atheist uh, groups to take up the mantle of science against religion before White and Draper? Mm -hmm. Did it, what, I mean, did that exist? And in what mode did that exist before them? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I've looked and other my colleagues have looked for sort of the background to Draper and White. One would think when you mentioned the French Revolution, one should look uh, at the at the French Enlightenment, the 18th century. Yeah. But what one finds there is more a kind of anti-clericalism than an uh, anti-religious sentiment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and it's very clearly tied to political and social movements and, uh, and, and, is, and the power of the church rather than religion itself. Even if you read the Encyclopédie, it's actually quite even-handed in, in most cases. There's one place in the Encyclopédie where um, there's an argument about um, uh, poorly lettered theologians who argued against Galileo, but it never devolves into saying that this is science and religion. It's hmm. that there are certain characters, certain people who have done something in the past, but it doesn't generalize the way Draper and White do. Okay. Um, so there, there's a, a, a question here from uh, Corey Andrew uh, Lebrecht. He says, so what was it about Protestantism that Draper would single it out as the twin sister of science? Was there a particular form of Protestantism, or how did he view Protestantism that it became such that? He doesn't really say. Um, he, he mentions uh, one character that uh, was uh, persecuted or by Calvin and Calvinists, and then he just goes on and says, oh, well, Protestantism is really a twin sister. And what he's doing is he's trying to um, um, explain away any kind of persecution of the sciences by Protestantism by saying, well, they're just, they're still kind of Catholic. So that's why they did it. Uh, but it's, it's a kind of explaining away rather than a, a rational statement. Um, one doesn't find a whole lot of rational statements in Draper. It's quite a remarkable book. Have a look at it, um, yeah. preferably with a large glass of wine. <laughs> I mean, because at least the way you portray Draper, I mean, it's sort of I mean, he seems to be anti, maybe if he's sort of becoming Unitarian and, and, and whatnot, I mean, or it was, it was striking because I think you said Draper lumps, you know, praises Islam and and thinks the Trinity is problematic. And yet his editor talks about criticism as coming from Unitarians and Catholics and Jews. Like, it, there's just the disconnect there is odd. Yeah, there are lots of disconnects. There are lots of disconnects. It's very peculiar. And really, um, I've talked to my colleagues who are historians of biology of the 19th century about Draper's ideas about climate change, cli mm -hmm. climate changing um, um, physiology, and therefore people come into conflict and so forth. And one of my colleagues said, well, 
I can sort of see where he's getting that. There's a little bit of Lamarck and there's a little bit of these sort of French ideas from the previous century. But the way Draper does it, and this is a quotation from a colleague, it's not my word, it's sort of cartoonish. Hmm. It's, it's very strange. It's very strange. Um, I do find him really interesting. I mean, I, I, I will make critical and, you know, prodding, joking remarks about it. It is very interesting how he moves along this trajectory about law. It's, it's okay. it, I find it very off-putting actually, but it's, it's interesting from an intellectual perspective. I don't think white is interesting from an intellect. There's no philosophical background to that, but Draper has a philosophical background. So there's a question from, from uh, Jackie Storbridge. Uh, so she's asking roughly, you know, why didn't religion or, or, or religious people try to refute these fallacies? Or, I mean, did they try in, in, in you know, yeah. Like what was, you know, you yeah. mentioned some of the, 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 you know, reactions in terms of reviews, but it was, it just, yeah, just curious what, what sort of reaction, other broader reaction was there? Yeah, um, there there were some uh, uh, arguments against them at the time, but they didn't seem to have much appeal. Now, as far as religious people, um, there have been studies of the various reviews that came out about uh, both Draper and White's book, particularly about Draper's. Um, and unfortunately, it is the case that a lot of um, Protestant uh, religious organs, magazines and so forth, liked Draper because it fit into the anti-Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And so it just made them seem better. We're mm -hmm. look at those horrible people over there that are flooding into our sit nation cities. Um, and so um, based a lot of the criticism came from um, Catholic uh, writers or Catholic uh, um, magazines, mm -hmm. and so was in fact dismissed as being, oh, well, of course you'd say that. Maybe um, just um, uh, a follow-up question related to that. I mean, um, and this, I'm stealing off a conversation we had earlier in some ways, but you mentioned the, so a lot of the, you know, specific facts that people associate with the history of, 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 of you know, you know, that, that before, you know, uh, before Copernicus, or sorry, before uh, Columbus, people thought, still thought the world was flat, uh, the dissection sorts of things. There, I mean, so in your writings and other places, there just are lots of evidence of Catholics who are doing science. Um, is it just the fact that they ignore all of those? And is that sort of, I mean, who are the scientists they're picking that, that they're finding that aren't religious uh, in these periods? And how are they portraying them in a way that sort of against religion or contrary to religion. Right. Yeah, th that's that's an interesting observation. I, in, in fact, they don't they they never find an irreligious scientist mm -hmm. to say, oh, here's our model. Yeah. It's it's completely negative. It's like here are people who were good scientists. Look what the church did to them. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all of it. I mean neither one of them I think would have come out to neither one of them writing in the late 19th century would have come out as an atheist, mm -hmm. right? White certainly was not. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. Draper has a religion of his own, which it's got a kind of God, but um, it's almost a neoplatonic kind of God. Mm -hmm. um, it's completely non-providential. So neither is, neither is atheistical. That comes later in the 20th century as the books are being sort of chewed over again and, and reprocessed. Um, uh, I mean, in the late 19th century, coming out as an atheist, that 
that would have definitely undercut the popularity of their books. Mm -hmm. um, and so in fact, there are some religious writers uh, of sort of very progressive, so to speak, uh, religious writers who thought about white, for example, is saying, oh, look, here is saying, here's what we did wrong in the past. Now we're going to have a new kind of religion in the future that's going to be better with science. Hmm. So they're, in fact, not trying to get rid of science. Oh, I'm sorry, they're not trying to get rid of religion, um, but both of them are um, modifying it, let's say, or they're see they're, some people read them as modifying religion. Okay. Um... No, okay. um, well, well, I think that's that's all the questions we have, and we're just about up uh, on our time. So uh, I just want to say thank you again very, very much for Dr. Principates for this fascinating lecture and for taking the time to speak to us. Um, and before we leave, I just want to, uh, um, if I can uh, uh, fix my screen here. Um, just want to, so the, the next lecture in our series um, will be on April 12th. Uh, so just a few weeks away, um, uh, again, at 7, uh, 7 p.m. Uh, uh, Rome time. Uh, and it will be on uh, Gerber of Aurillac, uh, Pope and Scientist. Um, and so we uh, uh, ask you to, to, to please uh, join us for that, uh, for a particular uh, strong figure uh, from, the, from uh, the, the, I believe, 11th century, um, 10th, 11th century, um, in sort of you know, sh showing something in his own person, this unity of science and religion. Um, so please join us for that. And, and, and thank you again, Dr. Principe, for your fascinating lecture. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you to all of you who attended. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.